I got a girl with a mind on love The kind of love that is dangerous It knocks me down but I get back up Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kevin and HJ podcast. Today, I have my good friend Andrew Ramondi coming on to the podcast as we talk NBA playoffs. I mean, what a crazy, crazy um, sequence of games. Game 7 of the Toronto series, Kawhi hitting that shot. Um, game seven of the Portland Denver series, being able to witness all of that and kind of recap it with Andrew, um, as he's a Portland fan. And of course the NBA draft lottery ended up happening yesterday, um, with all the news about Zion Williamson potentially going to, uh, the new Orleans Pelicans. We're going to break all of that stuff down in the first half of the pod. So, uh, tune in and give that a listen, and then I go on my quick little rant at the end of the podcast talking about the New York Jets football team and them firing Mike McCagnin. So get my thoughts on that in the last couple minutes of the pod. So give it a listen, tune in, and subscribe if you guys have not subscribed yet to the podcast. So thanks for listening, and let's give Andrew a call. Hey, Kev. Hey, Andrew. Nice to hear from you. I'm glad that you're able to come on to the pod. And, I mean, what a crazy – and we're filming this right now, 1 o'clock uh, Wednesday, right after the NBA draft lottery happened. First game of the Western Conference Finals happened. What a crazy, like, 12 hours after, like – um, all that stuff has happened and all the storylines coming out of uh, the draft lottery and things like that. Just give me your like general reactions of what ended up happening. Well, I, you're absolutely right for one thing. And I think it's an interesting kind of not, I mean, maybe Zion affected it in some way, but it really just shows you like, I thought like how much of the like the fact that the Western Conference Finals started yesterday and all people wanted to talk about was the lottery. I don't blame them, but it it kind of does to me show a little bit about where the NBA has gone, just in terms of the way, like just how much like the palace intrigue has kind of taken over, like how that is a thing we're leading off the show with that. That is kind of all anyone wants to talk about, but you can't blame them because there were just so many compelling storylines and, you know, obviously the, at the top are, are now the new Orleans Pelicans, but I wanted to real quick tell you actually how I watched the draft lottery. So I was in Vegas with my dad and my little brother for a few days and we actually flew back in last night and landed around eight forty-five. So I'm watching the, draft lottery pre-show on um on the tv in front of me like they have direct tv on united flights so i'm watching that for a little while and just as they're kind of going into they're about to start doing the counting down like kind of the picks itself i actually am getting off the plane as speak as that (laughs) as that's about to happen so i'm like kind of like trying to rush off the plane so I can possibly see what happens. And I get out 
Terminal C at Newark, and there are TVs around, but nothing has the lottery on. So I'm kind of running down, uh, kind of running down the concourse to try and get to a TV, and I pass like a bar at some point, and it's actually in commercial. So mm-hmm. I missed like the Lakers jumping up and stuff like that when it came out. When it came up. Like, when it finally came back, it was at the top four. So, like, I kind of just saw that, like, the Lakers and Pelicans had jumped up and was just like, you know, whoa, and then we can kind of maybe take it from there. But I th- that was kind of the unique way that I saw it. But the other cool thing kind of was once, cool or not cool, I kind of got to see the reaction of a lot of Knicks fans as, as the Knicks got called for the third pick, so... Right. It was pretty hilarious to kind of see the cutaway from um, from from the draft lottery to the Knicks bar and then all of them celebrating once they were confirmed that they were in the top four uh, right before they went into commercial break. And then it, it's like an interesting dynamic because people in the room already know like Mm-hmm. who got selected like the Ernst and Young guy knows and then like all the media members that were in the lo- draft lottery room know so they kind of know like all the things that are gonna kind of happen and for them to see Knicks fans celebrating on TV only to know like 10 minutes later they're gonna get their heart broken is kind of funny um in itself and it's just like it was crazy to kind of see like all the variability that ended up happening yeah. because, because I think, and I think um, that's what the NBA wanted, obviously with the institution of the new draft lottery rules and the smoothing out of the odds. And now with all of that happening, it just kind of, I wonder how it affects teams moving forward in terms of the way they play out a season or if it doesn't really affect it at all. Yeah, no, it is interesting. And I, I have a couple thoughts to the, on this. I, I did think it was interesting. I would like to kind of talk about the show itself and see, and see what you thought about kind of the way they were talking about things and, and kind of, you know, there were a couple moments that kind of cutaways to, to Zion and then, uh, there was also a thing being talked about on Reddit where I think Woj or someone's talking about the Lakers trading for AD and you can like see Kyle Kuzma kind of like hearing it and being uncomfortable. But I I thought, you know, this lottery did react because it was so the Knicks stuff. I, I don't blame the media or like any Knicks fans or whoever for being excited, but like, the fact of the matter was they had a 14% chance of, of getting the number one pick. And in fact, you saw the other two two teams who had gotten into that kind of 14% rage, Atlanta and, and the Suns, fall out of the top four completely. I don't remember where they ended up exactly. I think Atlanta has two picks now. I, I don't quite remember. But, um, you know, that – we're going to see, and it'll be interesting. I don't think it's going to stop teams from tanking because at the end of the day, if you're going to be at the bottom of the league, like say you were the Suns this year or anything, it still doesn't really behoove you to have won, you know, five more games. You still want to maximize your odds. Right, right. But I do think what will be interesting, and I'll admit I'm stealing this from Zach Lowe's article, which I – 
talking about being in the NBA draft room, which I just read shortly before we started doing this, I think what might be interesting is maybe teams are more, they're less inclined to give away to, you know, uh, to trade lottery picks or maybe the value of lottery picks now increase, like meaning on the whole, like even like the presumptive, 12th pick or whatever because the odds are more flattened out and now we've seen that all you really need is is a six percent chance you know eight percent chance to to be in the mix so that that'll be interesting i think but i don't think i don't think tanking is going to be curbed that much and maybe maybe now with your uh team that's like has a chance to compete for the eighth seed or whatever. Maybe now your advantage, you know, this is all game theory speculation stuff, but maybe now you're less inclined to go for that eighth seed because you, you're like, well, all I need is kind of a ticket into the lottery here. Well, yeah, and I, I, I kind of want to outline that point and hammer that point home is that, like, I think what you said about the draft picks having more value in terms of trade trade value, I totally agree with that um, aspect of things. And I think teams are going to try to value those potential lottery picks because of the chances of the, them jumping into the top four and getting a high-impact player. And then also along with that, the same thing with the eighth seed thing, like, let's say you're two games behind in the final two weeks of the season, and then you just decide, all right, we're going to just kind of give it up, and they end up being, like, the 10th team. You kind of saw what ends up happening with, like, a team like the Lakers, who end up yep. jumping up into the top four. Um, the Grizzlies, who weren't even, like, I, I don't remember their odds, like, in terms of, like, I think they were, like, set, sixth or seventh in terms of, like, the worst record they end up jumping up to um, and New Orleans as well. So it's kind of like, it kind of gives that incentive. Like if you don't realistically see yourself um, like in the context of it fitting in, in the, of your like teams, like trajectory of you making the playoffs or your job is on the line, it might be better to kind of lose the games in the last two weeks or so so it's not like a, not like it's kind of like to the fans like oh we didn't completely mail it in this season, um, so they're kind of splitting the hair I guess yeah no they're splitting no, the baby type of thing. Totally agreed, and I'm I'm looking. I just pulled up Tankathon now. New Orleans and Memphis actually had the same chance. They both had like a about a seven point two percent chance of jumping into the top four and a six percent chance of getting to number one. The Lakers really were the one you know, that, that was kind of, they had like basically a 2% chance of getting that four pick fourth pick. So, but yeah, once again, I, I completely echo, echo every point you made. And I, I think if you're okay with, with kind of moving to the top now, first and foremost, I have to give you some credit. I actually got kind of excited when, when New Orleans was announced for the number one pick, because you were kind of making the case to me two days ago over text and just saying like, how cool would it be if, if new Orleans got the number one pick and, and they did. So what was, what was going through your mind as, as that happened? Well, the reason why I was thinking about this, and I think this is where we can kind of get kind of transition and talk about like all the different teams that are involved with a potential Anthony Davis trade and things like that. And the trade potential 
I was just thinking about potential trades for Anthony Davis and what New Orleans could do. And the reason why I said, like, if New Orleans was able to get in the top three, uh, especially get one of those players like John Morant, RJ, and then now it looks like Zion, is that they're going to be able to be able to pair those two players, two of those three players really nicely moving into the future And it's not like they would be a complete and utter, like, failure slash devoid of talent without Anthony Davis if he were to leave. Because potentially, like, with the way things were going to work, especially if they're going to trade him to the Knicks, that number one pick would have been super valuable as a trade piece now for Anthony Davis to get traded before the draft lottery determined what the order is. And I was just kind of thinking – you know, like with all the karma and what they went through with Anthony Davis, it would have been kind of nice to have them get a nice, like, I don't know, like a wink, wink from God or the basketball gods looking down on them kind of thing. So that's kind of what my thinking was on that. But I, it was just like, I just couldn't believe it. At Like when I was watching it live that it actually ended up happening with, and and I think this is another place we could kind of go. Can we just get rid of like half of NBA Twitter talking about conspiracy conspiracy theories? Because I think I jokingly kind of texted you like, "Hey, this is a conspiracy." Like, yeah, no, and I took you seriously and was right, like right. starting to get mad. not get mad, but then then our friend Chris kind of said something in the group chat, and I I, I don't know. I just think it's silly. You know, it was interesting that uh, that I Darren Rovell, you know, the Ben Shapiro of NBA Twitter, pointed this <laughs> out. But um, the that the two least valuable franchises in the NBA got the top two picks, and uh, that people were kind of, and you know, the Lakers jumping up too. And that, but uh, you know, I, I don't think you know whatever. I don't think yes, I agree. Let's let this die. But I think if the NBA is is rigging this. They are not giving Memphis the number two pick. That That's kind of what I was saying. And, you know, it, it's interesting because it brings up the, the two two sides of a coin, something I hadn't thought of, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much. But, you know, the idea of, like, well, New Orleans is going to lose Anthony Davis, and now, and now they're going to get – and they're getting kind of a replacement in Zion. Another – you know, when we were talking about this, you know, we've been – hitting on the lottery kind of in miniature over and over and I said you know you can go back to LeBron but I it reminded me the most of Anthony Davis and for New Orleans to kind of get get two bites at the apple is interesting but regardless of what happens here and you know I'll bring up the topic I'll bring up kind of my reactions to it the, the you know they get kind of a second chance and hopefully they can learn from their mistakes because their failure with Anthony Davis was in not being able to construct a team around him that was really capable of of doing anything and luckily now they hopefully have better infrastructures in place with David Griffin and Gail Benson supposedly kind of being more willing to commit resources to the team. So I wanted to bring up two things here. Um, I wanted to say, because we were talking about this back and forth on uh, over text, 
and I thought we could kind of rehash the conversation. We were talking about kind of the Knicks versus the Lakers and, and who had the the better trade package, and you were kind of leaning towards the first, and I was trying to make the case for the Lakers. Do you still feel like the Knicks have the upper hand? Because I, the point I was making, and this is actually Lowe talked about this in his article and, and kind of agreed with my initial perspective on things, was that basically the difference between three and four when you take – like now, I don't think the Knicks kind of got enough of a gap between the Lakers because Larry – in front of the Lakers with their pick number, because now the answer, I think the Lakers pieces that they can throw in are superior to the Knicks. And I'm not sure the difference between three and four is, is enough to make that up. How do, how do you feel about that? I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's a competition between the Lakers or the Knicks either. It's like, I mean, there's other teams out there. I think Boston, if they really wanted to, they could still trump any trade that, the Knicks or the Lakers can put out there, even though the Lakers got that number four pick, I think that that Boston still kind of edges them out a little bit. There's a, there's a lot of questions with the Lakers package and no one's like a slam dunk type of fire there. And it really, I think it really depends on how valuable you, how, how much you value someone like RJ Barrett in comparison to Brandon Ingram. And yeah, what what it is that and like how you value them in conjunction with like all those ancillary pieces that you're talking about is R.J. Barrett, Kevin Knox, Mitchell Robinson better than the package of Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, and then someone like DeAndre Hunter, Jared Cole, like and and I think that's where it becomes it it it, it it's a lot of like trying to weigh out different options and it depends like what that Knicks front or the uh, Anthony Davis trade is going to bring to fruition and like what that New Orleans front office is trying to seek after are they trying to seek after like a legitimate star I think out of those players like that it's kind of and I've made this analogy and I think a lot of NBA people make this analogy of like draft picks being like cars in terms of like once you drive the car off the lot, it loses like half its value. Basically once you draft a player, it loses so much of its value that it's a, it really has, and it like the unknown becomes a known quantity now that you really have to figure out what you need. I mean, initially I think, it's the if obviously hypothetically if the Lakers ended up getting that third pick, I think it would have been a slam dunk like yeah. Anthony Davis going to the Lakers. Now it just brings about like a lot more possibilities. And maybe I mean there is a lot of rumors that New Orleans just kind of is like sick of the Lakers and like all the stuff that ended up happening, and they might just stick it to the Lakers. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It certainly is possible, and I thought, because I was thinking about this a lot, too, and I think the point you just made gives the the Pelicans a fascinating decision in this regard, because, like, um, so let's talk about them trying to maybe just keep AD for a second, which is something I brought up to you and something that's been discussed as well. Woj, a lot of these NBA guys have have been – kind of hitting this idea of like David Griffin wants to 
a la kind of Paul George with the Thunder, maybe wants to try and run this thing back and, and give uh, and give the Pelicans a chance under this kind of new regime to win over AD. And ostensibly having Zion on your team uh, is an attractive piece, you know, maybe arguably is more attractive that could be seen as maybe more attractive than going to the Lakers or, or what have you. But the interesting thing is, and I've been thinking for a while, like, over the course of the last few hours, kind of, well, maybe you try and just, like, maybe you hold AD until the trade deadline. You play, see what this team actually looks like on paper for for a while, and maybe they're really, really good, and, you know, AD wants to say, but the interesting kind of binary you made, and a lot of people were saying, like, if AD gets dealt, it'll probably be before the draft, and I think it's for the reasons you just outlined. Like, there is an argument to be made that, you know, there's leverage stuff that comes into play as well. But there's an argument to be made that if you hold him until after the draft, any value you're getting kind of drops exponentially because you lose your chance to pick your own guy, whether that be at three or four or, you know, any other package. Right, right. And, I I mean, I totally agree with that. I think, like, it it depends, like – and how you value someone like Anthony Davis too, because Anthony Davis, like talent wise is probably top three in the league, just on pure talent. Um, And if you think about it, you probably want to give a chance to see what that team looks like, especially with Drew, Anthony Davis, and then potentially Zion all playing together and see like, how those pieces fit, obviously. And then, like, I totally agree. Like, do you really think, like, his value is going to drop that much before, like, by the trade deadline to the point where that deal from the Lakers, the Knicks, or, like, Boston's not going to be there? Like, I think the Lakers maybe – would think like, oh, he's definitely coming, he's definitely coming, but they've been burned in all these free agency talks multiple times now that I wonder if it has this psychological effect on them in terms of maybe we just need to, like, push our chips into the table and say, hey, let's just get our guy now during the trade deadline if uh, New Orleans decides to hold on to to AD. Yeah, no, it's, it's possible. Well, and yeah, the point you you made, if, you know, let's say the the Lakers make a push for AD now and they get rebuffed, like say New Orleans does make that ultimate decision. I think that because you said trade deadline, I uh, I think there's a chance maybe if, if the if Laker, if the Pelicans decide to hold on to AD, maybe the Lakers go take that number four pick and go in another direction. I don't know who that player would be, but there's a chance they trade that pick no matter what, right? You, yeah, you'd think I, over like drafting Jarrett Culver or whatever, because there is interesting. I want to talk about the two pick and like maybe people moving up to number two and what the Grizzlies decide to do is an interesting thought process, too. But the Lakers really I don't see much incentive to them keeping that pick or like I just don't see it in their DNA of actually drafting there, regardless of what happens with AD, right? Right, and it seems like Polinka kind of came out and said, like, we're going to trade this pick, like, yeah. in not so many words, but he yeah. was just 
it was pretty clear if you like sifted through all of what he was all of his coded language he was kind of saying yeah we need to like surround this team with talent and i can't imagine lebron being excited to play like i think he would have been excited to play with zion but like him and like Jarrett Culver, I can't imagine him being like extremely ecstatic with someone like that. But if you can package that that piece and then like another piece with like Bradley Beal or something like that, mm. like I'm pretty sure Washington would jump on that right away. I don't know if Washington would even do it for a number four pick to trade one of their better players, but maybe they kind of like go fishing for a player like that and see what they can acquire. Um, but I can't even, I, I can't imagine that Laker pick being in Lakers hands by the time they're ready to choose or that player eventually playing for the Lakers for more than a year or two, <laughs> because yeah. it just seems, it just seems like that player is going to be used as the trade chip to help LeBron, um, win a championship or potentially build the team around him. So I can't really see it being used. And I think the, the second point that you brought up about Memphis kind of is an interesting thing where I did see on like NBA Twitter where there were people talking about Memphis being okay with trading down potentially um, to, for to acquire more picks potentially. But being at number two and then to willingly trade off that pick, especially when I think a lot of draft analysts think it's a top, it's like a, it's like a top heavy draft. And only there's only like three legitimate NBA, like potential stars in this draft. It seems like, I don't know. Isn't that what you want coming out of an NBA draft? Someone drafting a, like a potential star, especially if you're at the top of it. Yeah, well, that's they have a fascinating kind of decision. And because you um, initially said to me um, about the Grizzlies, and I want to make sure we hit on the Knicks and even, even the Celtics side of the AD thing too, but we can jump around a little bit. You said kind of, well, the Grizzlies now at number two, they can have a Conley replacement in John Morant. And then you would think that drafting John Morant then opens you up to kind of explore Conley trades again and kick the tires on that, maybe get one more asset. And then you have a nice little, a nice little nest to build around. But if the Grizzlies decide that what I think they might, they could theoretically draft Barrett at two. And I kind of wanted to talk about the Barrett versus jaw thing and get in a take on that. But if, they decide, you know, we we want to maybe stick with Conley or whatever they decide Ja isn't, isn't their guy, and, and they decide to trade down. I thought the interesting idea was, like, if I'm the Knicks now, I'm throwing. What about if you're – because you kind of want – if you're the Knicks, you're more inclined to make a splash, and I think Ja is more of that the guy in that regard. Like, now that you've missed out on Zion, I think the best chance – Obviously, you. It depends what you're doing in free agency too. I guess if you're getting Kyrie, getting Jaw doesn't really matter. But maybe you package like Kevin Knox and the third pick to try and move up to two, and take Jaw if the Grizzlies decide that's not in their cards. But I do agree with you. 
I guess there could be the idea that, like, if they think a guy like Garland or, you know, I guess R.J. Hunter, it wouldn't, Hunter probably wouldn't make sense because they have Jared Jackson, but Culver or Garland or someone like that, if they see that as their guy, then you have an incentive to trade down. But I agree with you with kind of the, the top three conception. But what I do think is interesting, I think R.J. Barrett has kind of been lost in the discussion a little bit. And I'm not sure I see so much of a delineation between Morant and and Barrett. I would be more than happy with either of those two guys. Yeah, I don't think, like, the talent um, drop-off is big enough between, like, I think it's pretty even, like, I think if you asked like a hundred people if they would take John Morant or RJ Barrett, I think there's a good argument that it'd be close to fifty fifty, um, maybe like sixty forty, depending on like oh uh, they're moved by John Morant's dunk highlights, um, you know that Sports Center kind of blew up on. It just doesn't it like if you evaluate both players, it it doesn't seem like there's a huge difference in terms of talent. So, like, the Knicks being able to trade, trading one more asset in Knox and then the third pick to get a player that might not even be that much better. And then, like, it's it's tough because you have to, like, determine, like, is KD coming? Is Kyrie coming? And how those players would fit. Because, obviously, like you are saying, if Kyrie comes, then probably be better to just take R.J. Barrett. Um, yeah and wait for him. But it, it really depends on who Memphis wants to decide on, because what if they decide, Hey, we'll just take RJ Barrett and kind of see, ride it out with Conley and see, see what that looks like. I mean, that's entirely a possibility too. So it, there's a lot of like moving variables here. And then like, let's kind of get into the Boston stuff too. Um, and then, I mean, we could talk about Boston and their potential trade package. And I was having, like, multiple conversations with other people. And I just felt like the art, like the the trade package that Boston can put together for AD, I think is still the best out of all the trade packages, potential trade packages out there, hmm. even with even with the Jason Tatum struggles, even with the Jalen Brown struggles. like So you're assuming both of them, though, like that you're giving up Brown and, and Tatum in that Celtics package for it to be the best, or you're thinking... I'm, right, right. So I'm just saying potential trade package for yeah. the Celtics, they can trump any trade package that's out there. It's just whether what their motivations are and what they're willing to do. So, like... And that kind of goes into what Kyrie, Kyrie's free agency looks like and whether or not he stays or goes. And then it also depends on, like, Horford and that, that contract situation as well. And then it depends if Kyrie's locked down long term, then they'll be more comfortable to pull the trigger, trigger I think, and make that trade. But if Kyrie's kind of waffling in his decisions and doesn't give – Boston the clear answer then I think you'll start to kind of see all right we got to kind of make our own decision about how much we value AD on like a rental and then at that point I think that kind of takes them out of the conversation yeah for sure and as we talk about this the whole kind of hilarious thing and I I hadn't even realized this that much is we kind of hope the lottery would give us some clarity 
as yep. to, as to what was going to happen here. And it really just muddied things even more because now you have so many – I mean, the Pelicans getting number one, I guess. Like, it clarified things for them kind of in the sense that they're probably going to – they're in a good position no matter what now, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But as it pertains to the the Knicks and the Lakers and the Celtics, it really just muddied things up even more because especially when you throw the fact that other than the Lakers, I mean, the Lakers theoretically could get a guy in free agency. I mean – Kyrie to the Lakers is something that's kind of been, and I wanted to get on the record on the podcast, Kyrie back to the Lakers is something that's been kind of jumping out to me as a common sense, not common sense in the sense of like a general person, but in the twisted common sense of LeBron James and Kyrie Irving, it's just something that's jumped out to me more and more kind of as of late. But setting that aside, these three teams that are kind of the front runners in the Anthony Davis sweepstakes are just like, there are so many factors that kind of uh, are going into all of them. And that there are so many, the timeline of how this NBA off season operates isn't such that like any, like it's really just a fascinating kind of thing from like an economic, like there's some sort of economics paper to be written on this because no team is really going to be able to make any of these decisions just without incurring some sort of risk or like no one's really going to be able to know everything when they, when they make these decisions. So it's going to be incredibly interesting to kind of see how things play out and how, how they approach it as it pertains to, you know, taking on risk. Right. And I, I mean, I totally agree with that. And so let me pose a question to you. So if you had to rank the trade packages that are potentially out there for Anthony Davis, how would you rank them right now? I would, you know, I think it's interesting that you, because I would need to know what you're saying the Celtics best package is, because I think the Lakers, everybody, and number four is the best trade package, meaning literally they're trading everybody. I, I so, don't know I if guess, they would do that. I don't think it would get to the point where they would do that. Maybe if they're that desperate. But I'm saying, like, Ingram, Kuzma, Ball, Hart, and number four is the best trade package available. Yeah, I mean, my thinking was for the Boston trade, Tatum, Smart, one of the other guys, just to kind of, like, throw him in there, and then that Memphis pick. That could become unprotected in 2021. They're pretty even. And I mean, without going, it kind of depends on how you view Tatum at that point, right? Right. Totally. And like, I mean, that's, isn't it such a crazy thing and how drastic the, I guess, perspective on and kind of like how people would evaluate Tatum now is just so wildly different compared in like one year time or even like before the trade deadline, because before the trade deadline, we were starting to kind of have that discussion. You absolutely hit the nail right on. And by the way, I don't think Jason Tatum's like a bad player or anything. No, definitely not a bad player. It's still hard to evaluate. I, I think to some extent, but you absolutely nailed it. You kind of started to pose this question of, is Tatum a little bit overvalued by some of the kind of, and maybe it didn't, didn't mean front offices, but, like, 
in the way maybe the media generally perceives Tatum and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And maybe me and you just listened to too much Bill Simmons at the time. And, you know, right. that, and that's why where you pulled this out of. But you kind of, besides those, like, but it was a very peripheral discussion. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you started to maybe, like, is Jason Tatum a little overrated? Started to kind of become a question around the trade deadline. But, you know, I think at the time his value was much higher than it is now. Would you would you agree with that or not? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. And then, and then like, he's kind of had this swoon, and then the playoffs happened with Boston going out for one in the second round. So that didn't really rehab his, like, value at all and he's basically going to be sitting for four to five months now waiting until October ends up or until the season starts in October and that's when we're going to be able to see him play again and we'll see what ends up happening is he able to improve on certain things in his game that can really enhance that trade value again and potentially Anthony Davis might still be on that Pelicans roster so that those Celtics really might need him uh, to be able to do that. And that might potentially happen, especially if Kyrie ends up leaving. So, like, there's just all this stuff that we have to talk about yeah. in the next coming months that end up, like, figuring out, like, all this trade value stuff. And I can't wait for it to, like, unfold and see what happens. One thing that I did want to touch upon that was kind of, like, that this, I guess, was going around on NBA Twitter in terms of like there being a cross sports reference was can Zion potentially pull like an Eli Manning where he just says, I'm not going to new Orleans and potentially on the flip side of things, like force to trade force new Orleans to kind of trade that pick um, for a place that Zion might find more palatable for him. I mean, it is an interesting question. Uh, it's hard for me to really speculate on it, though. Uh, like, based on my just conception of who Zion is as a guy, it doesn't really seem like that's in his DNA. I mean, but, yeah, all hell would break loose if if, if that happened, of course. I mean, between that and AD, I mean, that like, that, it is a kind of interesting discussion just of, like, how many teams would be vying for the number one pick and how valuable that pick would then become in terms of AD. Like, you know what I mean? It's hard right, to right. even like just, and then just when you consider from the perspective of the funny thing would be like, if he did say you can't take me number one and it forced the Pelicans to trade that pick, probably they would have the most assets of any team of all time. You know what I mean? Right, the idea I know. that they could trade both the number one pick and Davis at the same time would be absolutely insane. But honestly, I would I would hope as a fan of the league that I I would really hope that that wouldn't happen. I wouldn't really love the precedent that would set, and you know it 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 would be pretty crazy. I I think though I wanted to put a bow on, and I don't know if you had anything else to say about that. I kind of wanted to put a bow on the. Let me put my one. Let me just put my one point on the Zion potentially forcing his way out. I think the one thing that I did want to say is, I mean, I I ended up doing some digging in the CBA, um, putting that law potential law degree into work, 
And it says in Article 8, Section 2, um, headlines, rookie contracts signed for late, or rookie contracts for later signed first round picks. It talks about how a first round pick who doesn't sign with the team that holds his draft rights for any port, uh, doesn't sign his draft rights for that season that team ends up holding his draft rights for three seasons thereafter. Mm. Yeah. So let's say Zion wants to hold out. Jesus Christ. Out we cannot. I can't, yeah. Keep going. Keep going. So basically, so basically is Zion going to hold out? For I cannot years? do this with the fucking, after the fucking <laughs> AD shit. I cannot uh, do this again. I cannot uh, do the, oh, well, should the league come in and force them to block? Like, please, God, do not make me do that. Do not make so, me have to worry about that. Oh, were you going to pick that great find? It's a great find by you, but I, I just pray that we don't have to have a situation where we're worrying about that again. Oh, yeah, totally. And, I mean, it was just something that I found interesting. That That's very I think, interesting. I think a lot of people would just be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure Zion's going to be going to New Orleans no matter what. So yeah. hold your horses on, like, whether or not he's going to be potentially trying to force the trade and or force his way out. Especially if, if right now, I mean, I get it. If you're operating – but if you're Zion, like, aren't you, like – I want to talk to – well, you have to wait until you get drafted, but aren't you like, I want to talk to Anthony Davis and, like, try and conv- like make my pitch to him for us to play together? Because totally. that's the best – that situation, the Pelicans with AD is arguably the best situation you'd be going – unless you're, like, someone who, like, wants to be the guy immediately, then maybe you want to go to New York. But, like, in terms of, like, your chance – Right, right. Best, best chance. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, wanted, yeah, that's, that's so yeah. true. Yeah. So what were you going to tie the bow on? Yeah, so I just wanted to say, I, I thought it was interesting. We didn't really touch on the Knicks that much, and it, it's it's a really hard thing to gauge, kind of. I think they're kind of out. I think, I think they're most – it's hard for me to see them getting back into the AD sweepstakes at this point unless – because I, I would put the Celtics package above any potential Knicks package at this point, to, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, but I just I just think it's interesting where they stand and where they go from here. Because if if they if they're getting KD versus KD and Kyrie, you know, versus something else, what they want to do with that third pick and whether they want to have like an RJ Barrett on their team is kind of a fascinating discussion. But I thought your Celtics point was I wanted you to kind of expand on this a little bit because we talked about it over text. So basically on the Knicks, I just wanted to say kind of like they're, I, they, it's hard not to paint them as, as kind of the big losers of this because I think they're kind of stuck in no man's land until they get to free agency at this point would kind of right. be, would be my take on that. But I thought your Celtics point was interesting because I thought you kind of said – your idea was like at this point looking at all the players, whether be it available in the draft or whatever. I think your point was kind of like even with Tatum's swoon, at the end of the day, if you're David Griffin, you're looking at it and saying, if I want a guy playing next to Zion, like 
out of any of these people that it's available, Tatum's the most intriguing guy. So I wanted you to kind of make your case for that. Yeah, I mean, I think Tatum's, like, he's at least shown that peak. And I think, like, the Lakers have a couple interesting pieces. Like, Lonzo's interesting, but he hasn't shown it. Like, the Ingram thing is he's he was showing it, and then this injury-slash-disease thing slash blood clot thing is happening. So you just never know with that, especially with Chris Bosch, like that. And yeah. like, there's a lot of medical questions there. Like if, if Ingram had a clean bill of health, then I think it'd be more of a conversation between Ingram and Tatum, um, especially with Ingram having played pretty decently this season. It's not like Tatum was completely awful this year it was just that in comparison to last year and what and the expectations and what we were expecting out of him he he just didn't end up taking that leap that you'd expect uh like a star player to play and you could I think you could kind of chalk that up to kind of figure trying to figure out what his role was on that team um and I think it's a more it's a matter of scheme a little bit more about scheme in that system and like having to share one basketball between a lot of those veteran players. And I think Tatum was trying to figure out what his role was and his role wasn't as clearly defined as it was last year in the playoffs when the Celtics maybe threw him into the fire a little bit, a little bit early, but he showed that he can do that if they ask that of him. Um, and I think Stevens kind of, and it, I think it brings up kind of interesting, potentially interesting like questions about like, did Stevens put all those players in the right places? To well, Terry Rozier certainly doesn't think he was put in the right position. Because Definitely he's been not. going on every morning show. He can, he'd probably come on this podcast to try to trash the Celtics. If Terry, we'd love to have you. We'd love to have you on. Just putting that out there. So we'd love to have you on if you want to talk. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I just think it's, it'll be really, really tough to kind of, it, it, it obviously depends on how you evaluate. And then the question becomes, I think, does, is RJ Barrett potentially better than, can you potentially see him being better than Tatum or Ingram? And I think that's where, that's where I think the Knicks may not be completely out of it, even though their package doesn't look as appealing. The only reason why I say that is maybe you're right. Maybe new Orleans kind of goes off of like, Hey, we'll trade Davis to, to the Knicks. And then, if RJ's there at three, we have RJ and Zion, and you know how. Good wow, that would be they so are. fascinating, though. Like the yeah. recreating Duke kind of thing in the in the NBA. I mean, that would that would be wild. Right, right. So it's kind of like one of those things where Zion and RJ, and I think they're painted out to be like I would watch like a couple Duke videos, and it seems like they were like those two were extremely close. To, uh, together so like to have like it seems like two good friends like leading this team I think they would be more heavily invested in staying with that team because they wouldn't want to leave one and one another kind of to die on an island so I that's I think that's my argument 
if um, New Orleans were to basically buy into this connection between Zion and uh, RJ. Yeah. But that, I mean, but, yeah, I think I'd rank it somewhere between Boston, then Lakers, then uh, Knicks at this point. And then we just don't know about any of these dark horse teams that could pop potentially pop out of nowhere, you know? Yeah. Um, but those are out of the three most talked about teams that I'd rank it one, two, and three. No, uh, I think that's, that's definitely a fair assessment before we move off the lottery. I wanted to know, cause I, this was a big discussion in my friend's group chat this morning. What do you think about the, what did you think about the, the lottery? I don't know if you were watching kind of out of the corner of your eye or if you were paying more attention to it. But what did you think about the lottery show as a whole and kind of how they were talking about things? I think it's such an interesting and supremely awkward and kind of a a fun way. You know, having the guys actually there and, you know, kind of cutting to – cutting the Zion all the time and having RJ Barrett answer questions about like Zion going number one is interesting. And then just the Knicks kind of related slant to everything. Well, do you think like, uh, I don't know what's, what do you think the NBA draft lottery kind of show? Do you, do you enjoy that or do you find it to be a little, a little silly? I mean, it's kind of what we watch it for, right? For the yeah. drama and all that stuff. Like, I didn't mind it, but I just No, neither was, did I. I thought it was pretty funny how – I think it was Nichols, right? Rachel Nichols. Yeah. Was like People kind of were really broad- shitting on Nichols, which which, which I, I'm not a huge I, – I mean, I kind of feel like some of the criticisms towards her are a little – I don't want to say sexist, but, like, yeah. the idea that she doesn't know what she's talking about kind of – when people say that makes me a little uncomfortable, but you know, no, no, I, I mean, that was definitely not where I was going to go with my comments. My I didn't comments think that was where you were right. going to, my, to be unfair. <laughs> right. So my comment for her was, I just found it hilarious how she would just kind of be like, basically like through her commentary about Zion, just like basically saying, Hey, you're going to like, we're basically trying to find out where Zion Wilson yeah. is going yeah. for like to the number one pick or basically and basically saying like we're gonna find out where zion goes lives for yeah. the next four years and yeah. it, it's just like a really funny charade that ended up happening um and especially with like a very presumptive number one pick and no, us knowing like pretty much who's the number one pick i can't remember like the last time we've really had this clear of a grasp on it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, like sometimes there would be some type of mystery, I would say, like just yeah. to maybe drive up leverage and trade value and stuff like that. But this is like extremely clear who's going to be taking number one. I mean, you could kind of see it in Alvin Gentry's reaction being reported like all through <laughs> the media, saying like letting out a fuck yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it's just kind of like one of those things where I found the broadcast to be hilarious, but, and that's kind of what we watch it for. No, yes. Um, and, I agree. So. and that's kind of the point I wanted to make, like, and I was trying to make to some of my friends, because there was this very popular post kind of complaining about everything being so Zion centric or just the fact that like, you know, they're talking about, 
like the uncanniness of talking about like as you expertly just pointed out the kind of awkwardness of talking about Zion and like where he's going with him there and then the kind of like AD centric nature of stuff with players and executives there but the fact of the matter is one the point I made to my friends is one Zion and like RJ Barrett and John Morant they all chose to be there this isn't the draft it's the draft lottery you know what I mean they don't Mm -hmm. have to go to this you know it's that double-edged sword and the point i was trying to make and i think you hit on it perfectly is like these are the narrative we love these narratives like this is what we're talking about on our podcast this is what we're talking about with our friends like this is the stuff that interests us so we can't blame and the same thing with the next stuff like that's the fact of the matter is that's the the dominant narrative so even if it's not statistically the one that makes the most sense necessarily like, we can't blame the kind of – we're biting the hand that feeds us if we complain about how it's covered after – Right, right. When it's, you know, the most interesting stuff. Yeah, this is, like, the most interesting stuff that I'd love to to watch. Like, I think the same thing goes on, goes on like, and, and if you want to draw parallels and people wanted to see, like, the all-star draft being televised between, yeah. like, LeBron and Giannis. And before, when it wasn't televised, we were like – why this would be great television people would watch this and like obviously that doesn't have hot that high of stakes but it was kind of interesting to like see where players got drafted and then this is like that same aspect of things and i i mean i think the one really funny thing i can't remember who who was interviewing zion post draft uh lottery and like all that stuff but it was pretty funny to kind of see like his very initial reactions to New Orleans getting the pick because I think there were like a lot of like memes going on um, like Twitter, Instagram, all this stuff about his basically, it seems like his mood pre-commercial was very light and happy, especially with him seeing the Lakers and the Knicks in the top, potentially in the top four um, going to those big markets. And then once the Lakers went off at four and then the Knicks were at three, you kind of saw his face yeah. kind of like change. get a little less excited. Right. Just a little. It was very yeah, well, subtle, but you could kind of see it change. So it was pretty funny to see that end up happening. Yeah. Um, and my, but my point to that would just be like, at the end of the day, this is an 18 year old kid. And this is someone who's grown up in the age of social media and Twitter. He hasn't been exposed of these narratives and probably hasn't hyped himself up or like bought into the possibility. You know what I mean? Like if you heard about yourself being talked to the Knicks constantly and you know what that can mean and you know seeing photos of yourself in a Knicks jersey or you know the and then the Lakers pop up and thinking about playing with LeBron like yeah I would be excited about that too and I would be a little disappointed and when those options went off the board, but that doesn't mean, you know, he's, he's not excited about the prospect of going to either of those other two teams as well. And it just, at the end of the day, like you've mentioned, kind of like this is a confluence of all of these different narratives and things coming together. And sometimes when they meet the actual real world, it's a little less uh, seamless than, than, than you think when it's on paper. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I totally agree with that. So it's just like, it it's just like a 
entertaining event that the NBA puts on. Yeah, and that's why the NBA is great. Like they give us this shit. Like you mentioned about the draft lottery, all that. I the yeah the like the All Star draft lottery. They they kind of have this naked spectacle and kind of give the people what they want in that way. And it's something that even if it doesn't always go off without a hitch and, you know, we, it's maybe because of that, that we get the ideas of, you know, the NBA being rigged and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I think they, they see the entertainment value for what it is. And, and I'm willing to take, take the prices of that. Right. So before we move on to uh, any of to talking about your I mean my favorite team is in the Western Conference Finals and we haven't talked about it for one right. second we're, yet. we're basically an hour into the pod and we haven't talked about the Western Conference Finals where there was actually a game on last night so was there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we moved on to them no I think, on the draft? I, I think we pretty much hit on everything and there is more draft intrigue as you you know, there's other stuff going on, but I think there's more than enough time to talk about that. So I, I had on it. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up? No, nothing else. So let's talk about the Trailblazers and the Warriors series. So there's Can a lot we of go players. back? Can we rewind it a little bit? Because I do want to yeah. talk about It's important to talk about game one, but I was thinking as we let's got talk to talk today. Yeah. Like, it's not – like, there's been so much fun stuff. Like, it's not fair – like – not that it's not fair to me, but like the whole Thunder series, we didn't even get to like talk about something So jumping into like them getting blown out and like not playing that well <laughs> in game one, I yeah, it's important to talk about, and I'm willing to talk about it, but it doesn't really do justice to kind of how this postseason has been. Right. So let's start with like your general re- general feelings and good good vibes about this Portland Trailblazers like playoff run to the Western Conference Finals. Yeah. So I mean, you have to go all the way back to when, when Yusuf Nurkic went down, right? And th- thinking about like I didn't get a chance to do this last night, but kind of our talk on the on the pod after that had happened had this almost funeral esque this kind of like well, the season's probably over. You know what I mean? Like memorializing right, right. the season kind of kind of feeling. And obviously I we talked about possible ways forward. But just like to put this in perspective as a Blazers fan, like it really does have this this storybook feeling to it because so many so many wild things have happened. You have Nurkic going down, obviously. You have kind of this and CJ also see it's important to mention that CJ McCollum was hurt at the end of at the end of the regular season. You have this last regular season game where they're going to get the four seed probably. They basically resign themselves to getting the four seed. They play mm-hmm. six guys and Anthony Anthony Simons goes for like thirty seven points as they come back from like twenty down to the Kings to get the third seed. And then you have this Thunder series, which there's now going to be a little bit of, especially if the Blazers get blown out in 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 this Western Conference Finals. I think there's going to be a lot of revisionist history as it pertains to Paul George not being 100%, maybe, and kind of this thought of like, ah, I would, maybe we wish the Thunder had kind of come out of the other side after all. You picked the Thunder to get to the Western Conference Finals. I did. I was I was wrong about that one. I admit. But I don't I know, man. Like it's I 
when we, I look back on that series, I'm going to remember Damian Lillard's buzzer beater. Of course, I think it's now Kawhi is kind of stolen the spotlight from him, and hopefully we'll get to hit on the Eastern Conference maybe at the end a little bit. There's just so much we have to cover. But it's important to remember, like, the Blazers kind of dominated that series a little bit. Like, it's possible that it would have gone seven if, if the Blazers had it won game five. But they thoroughly looked, I thought, like the better team in that in that series. Despite yeah. that, I mean, I'm going to remember that that shot in, in game five for the rest of my life. I mean, that mm-hmm. that was absolutely incredible to watch, you know. Yeah. But I, I was kind of by how how good they how well they played in that in that series you know i i thought they could win it but the way they did it was was fairly impressive to me uh and you can also attribute a lot of this it's interesting kind of and kind of looking ahead i don't know what's going to happen in this series but it's hard to sometimes figure out the balance of like how well this team is playing and how good they're going to be going forward versus like, well, did Billy Donovan not take advantage of certain things? Did the Nuggets not play well in that series? But the one thing I have to, that's come up over and over again and kind of thinking about the Nuggets series is just the resiliency of this team and how they've found Mm -hmm. different ways to win. I mean, the Nuggets series looked pretty much evenly matched, I thought, and it was a slog. I was pretty nervous about the Nuggets series going in. Uh, you were being very positive to me and saying I like their chances, and I and I thought the Blazers could win. But I was pretty worried about the matchup, just in terms of defending the Murray-Jokic pick-and-roll stuff, and also Millsap. And I was pretty much right on both fronts. Right, I was really about to say. Until, we, until Collins kind of emerged a little bit late in the series, as kind of a four with Cantor. And, I mean, he played some five as well and even defended Jokic pretty well in in game six and seven. But, I mean, for most of the series, that was the case. The fact of the matter is, and what I didn't make you realize from my – I'm not a pessimistic fan, but in my trying to be realistic, what I didn't really realize was like that – and it's not that they couldn't guard the, the Nuggets, couldn't guard the Blazer guards. I thought Gary Harris did a great job on Lillard in particular. And uh, I, I think they were able to keep McCollum in check at various points. I mean, not in game, mm-hmm. the epic. What was that? I don't even, was that game three or game four, the four overtime yeah. game? Yeah, like, yeah. In, uh, four, in that game and then in game seven. But what I didn't kind of realize was that the Nuggets weren't really very well equipped to stop the Blazers either, which led to just so much fun offensive fireworks. It was for being such a grind. I'll look back on it as kind of a grinded out series, but for being a grinded out series, the offense was just so much fun to watch. I thought it was by far the best series of that second round, which was an incredible second round looking back really in it a really lot of different was. ways. Mm-hmm. But, um, I don't want to ramble on for too long here, but, you know, and just that whether, and, but anyway, the kind of finding ways to win and just not really being phased in game seven, coming out to a 17 point deficit, the four overtime game, they just kind of kept playing, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't think they worried too much about kind of any limitate cancer based limitations or, you know, Lillard not having it going in varying situations. They kind of just kept playing. 
and I ended up watching the game seven uh, in a sports book. I watched it in, I was staying in the Planet Hollywood in Vegas, but there's this place called The Link. It's it's another Caesars property. And uh, it's, it's a little newer and they kind of have these like couches in various areas. But I ended up sitting in kind of the bar area to watch it. And uh, the first half, I was just like, muttering to myself I was so angry there was this other kind of blazer fan sitting next to me who ended up getting and leaving getting up and leaving a little bit after halftime mm-hmm. and uh, it was so funny to watch it down the stretch because it started to fill in and a lot of people probably have just bet on the game so in the fourth quarter like every time the blazers would score like half of the people would cheer every time the nuggets would score half the people would cheer and you know as as McCollum is kind of putting on that clinic in the fourth quarter, especially yeah. as he hits that that clincher, what ended up kind of being the game game, what kind of put the game away. He, I mean, I want to talk. I want to talk about CJ in general, uh, kind of, and the Dame CJ stuff. I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on mm-hmm. it. But as he kind of is coming off a pick and roll, Tory Craig basically right in his right kind of up behind him and he hits that mid ranger like I just went nuts and I was mm-hmm. I was the loudest person in that sports book. So you know, I'll have a lot of memories from, from this run, but what I'll kind of remember the most is just the different ways in which they, they were able to win. Yeah. I I mean I completely agree if like you had to like put one word on this Portland team is that resiliency and like just that hard work aspect to this team like they're like what our friend Chris says just kind of like construction <laughs> worker lunch yeah. mail work you know like they basically are just like coal miners going to work um but and the different people they've gotten contributions from I didn't even mention Rodney Hood who really came alive in that second series you had Seth Curry contributing a lot in the OKC series you had Collins who's been playing just the best basketball of his career uh, during this playoff and gives me a lot of hope kind of for their future, whether it's him at the four or him maybe playing some five, but uh, I just wanted to throw that in there as well. You can keep going. Oh yeah. No. And I was going to totally bring up like all the role players that ended up stepping up, even guys like that we felt like might be irredeemable like Evan Turner because of the contract that was given. Yeah. He's even played a role in, in a couple of these games. Like Myers Leonard c- gave them some spot minutes to kind of like give them some more athleticism to guard Yoke yeah. at the end of that series. So yeah. they're just like the way that Stotts has utilized each of these role players in specific positions and specific um like roles has been really impressive to me to be able to see what he's been able to do his team and knowing his personnel and knowing what they're able to do and what they're able not to do. Like, I think the one key coaching change within that uh, round two series was when we were kind of texting back and forth on this was when they went away from the canter guarding, I think, Whoever, or whoever was guarding Jokic, I think it was Aminu. Oh, yeah, um, they tried to go. That was kind of an adjustment in and of itself, but in game uh, five, specifically when they got blown out, they were playing Aminu on Jokic and Kanter on, on, uh, on Millsap, and it was kind of like the worst of both worlds in a way. 
Right. And they were just getting killed. So then they ended up flipping it. They even, I think they started that game six with it for a little bit. Yeah, right? basically they did for, and I, they started it in game six. They were like losing by like nine and they called the timeout. Like the first half of the first quarter, they were. Right. It was going like, to that. They, they were, I think they were down like 16 to seven or something. And then they yeah. decided like, all right, this is not working. Let's switch it back. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of where, from that point on, they started to pretty play pretty well. And, like, I was extremely impressed with C.J. McCollum. Like, yeah, if you kind of look at Dame's numbers throughout round one, he played extremely well yeah. um, against OKC. Round two, you kind of saw his numbers dip. Like, his shooting percentages weren't as good yeah. um, as his round one series. And his three-point percentage was nowhere near as good. He had been, he kind of struggled. And I think that could be some credit to kind of Mike Malone and get, uh, him deciding to put Gary Harris on him. Yeah, I thought and, Gary Harris played incredible individual defense on him when he was on there, when he was on him. There were times when Torrey Craig was on him also. But mm-hmm. I thought Harris specifically played really, really good defense on on Lillard in that series. Yeah, and and you kind of needed another player to step up like CJ. Yeah, he really he really ended up stepping up. And then the Rodney Hood thing kind of like surprised me. And I think yeah. it's really I think not to bring in like LeBron into every single conversation, <laughs> but it's I think it's really fascinating to see players succeed without LeBron and like like I think that narrative is kind of being played out in a couple players right now with Rodney Hood and in Portland and then George Hill in uh Milwaukee with the Bucks so it's really fascinating to kind of see like that happen and how like different roles for for players that we thought are complete crap um, yeah, could actually contribute to a winning playoff product. So well, I really, want, yeah, yeah, sorry, keep going, keep going. No, no, um, and that, I mean, I just wanted to tie the bow on that and kind of say that, and then, yeah, CJ's really impressed me with, I think he was the best player in that series, and they wouldn't have advanced if they, if he, they didn't get the production that they did from CJ. Yeah, I wanted to just kind of you you made me think of two things related to those two players and then we can maybe talk about the Warriors series a little bit. But the hood thing I wanted to say and you can connect this to LeBron or whatever, but where they've allowed and this is a credit again to Stoss and the way this team is built and it's something that gives me hope for the future no matter what no matter what happens in this Warriors series. I think Portland has really established itself now as a place where players can go and kind of have freedom and find themselves. You even saw, even though it did, he didn't end up having a great season overall and got traded. You saw that with Nick Staskis at the beginning of the series and stuff like that. You've mm-hmm. seen like all cancer too, man. You've seen these players come into Portland and they give you the freedom to kind of succeed and do what you do best. Like why I don't think Rodney Hood succeeded with the, with the late, with the, Cavs is he was forced to stand in the corner and be a spot-up shooter, and that's not what he does. Where he succeeded and where, like, he was 
getting the most of the most of his points in the in the Nuggets series, and you actually saw a little bit of it last night. He was arguably their best player last night. I thought maybe CJ also, but when Murray was on him, they would just go to him and let him post up and let him work, like let him go one on one and be a scorer. That wasn't what he was able to do in the Cavs system. So I think the Blazers are very good at kind of. And same with, like, even go back to, like, Mo Harkless and, you know, Pat Connaughton and people like that. I think they're really good at finding what you do best and letting you kind of have the freedom to do that thing. And even if you make some mistakes along the way, like, kind of let you shine. So I think that's totally cool. And that's been exemplified in the hood thing. On CJ, I just wanted to point out – it's just so funny in that Lillard, I think the Lillard CJ backcourt breakup thing is, is dead for at least the foreseeable future. And God bless for that. You know what I mean? For better or for worse, I think it's dead, but I think what I've learned and, you know, it didn't really come to pass in the last playoffs, but I think for all of their limitations and it'll struggle eventually. Like I think the size of, of especially Clay Thompson wreaked havoc on both of those as I thought in the first game. Mm-hmm. And when you come up with teams with like great length at the one and two specifically, I, I think, you know, things change a little bit, but not most teams don't have this, but I think what I've learned is for all of the drawbacks of the Lillard McCollum backcourt, what I've now seen is in the playoffs, McCollum's skill set becomes way more valuable because his mid the playoffs game. when yeah. yes and in the playoffs when things grind down and it's a lot more one on one and you have to get tough buckets like CJ McCollum that's what he does best and now he's really shown that his ability to do that makes him way more valuable in the playoffs so you know for all of Lillard's theatrics especially in that first round playoff series. I think the most important thing has been has been McCollum's ability to do that. And uh, we saw that in the Nuggets series, as you mentioned. I would agree that he was the MVP. Right. And to kind of go along with that point, it's kind of, it shows how valuable CJ is with the ball in his hands and him being able to handle the ball and at times take the burden and the load off of Dame. Um, yeah. when Dame is struggling a little bit. Can you imagine if it was basically a Dame-centric team and then maybe you had someone like Kevin Love, who I had been basically throwing in trades to Portland to get him to go to Portland for C.J. McCollum. Like, you know, maybe Ke- Kevin Love returns to, like, that dominant form, but that that was that doesn't look likely. Um, and especially in the playoffs now, especially if a guy can go one-on-one beat his man off the dribble and kind of get that floater that TJ likes to hit or yeah. stop on a dime and hit that like 18 footer from the elbow, then it's, those are the bu- tough buckets that are needed in playoff situations that CJ provides. And it, to have another player like that to go along with Dame is extremely, extremely valuable. Um, so I, I totally agree with that assessment that it doesn't seem like they're going to be broken up um, anywhere, like, at all. So it just seems like that's going to be their team for the future. I think there's some interesting questions, and I guess we could kind of answer that uh, once the season's over. Um, 
about like the Portland off season and then potentially the Nets off season. Um, talk about my yes, Nets I know it's so episode. sad that yeah, like, it feels. I, mean, I don't know if you so- talked about that with with Dave or when you talked a couple days ago, but I feel bad that like it's been so long and the Blazers have kind of taken up the spotlight so much that like it feels like a million years ago that that Nets. Sixers series happen. Oh, yeah. We'll get a chance to talk about that. Yeah, we'll definitely that. talk about that. So let's talk about let's kind of break down game one yeah. uh, for Portland a little bit. I mean, I think we kind of saw like their tired, heavy legs from yeah. game seven kind of carry over to this game. And it didn't seem like like I was fairly impressed with how well Portland was like staying in the game. Um without them shooting well at all, without them playing well, them turning the ball over and like, so many times. I don't think Golden State played incredible, but Curry and Clay both played really, really well. So it's not like, you know what I mean? It's right. not like it's they not... were staying you in it because goal. And, and they ended up losing by almost 20. So obviously they didn't stay in it forever, but uh, it's right. not like Golden State. What They were clicking pretty well, I would say. That's true. Like, it's not like Golden State was playing awful either. And yeah. it was just a battle of awful teams and not executing. It Steph was playing extremely well. And, I, like, he was shooting the ball well, um, kind of got out of whatever he was going through with his finger and the slump or whatever, shooting slump that a lot of people were talking about. Seemed like he was shooting it fine yesterday. So I was fairly impressed that Portland was kind of able to keep it within a couple possessions going into halftime. And even at, like, even with, like, a minute left to go in the first half, I think I sent you a text because my stream was kind of <laughs> running yeah. a little late and maybe gave them a jinx. But they're down, <laughs> like, they're down one possession with, like, 50 seconds left. And then Curry hits two threes and it goes up to nine fairly quickly. Um, but it was, like, it, it was really impressive that they were able to stay in it. And I think it's that has to be encouraging for Portland and for Portland fans because they didn't even play their best and they were able to keep it relatively close within the first half. Um, and, like, Dame did not play well. And, he, honestly, yeah. Dame hasn't been playing, yeah. like, his round one self. And no. he's going to have to replicate – that type of performance for the rest of this series for them to have any semblance of a chance for yeah. them to advance or even yeah. get a couple of games. So I, you, and you hit, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, that, that was all I was going to say. Better hope that Dane kind of get this shooting form back yeah. um, fairly quickly for them to have any type of chance. No, agreed. And um, I thought that uh, you, Actually, I thought broke broke the game down pretty well and hit on a lot of points that you, uh, that I that I was going to make. Like you texted, me. I actually feel and still feel fairly optimistic about this series. I mean, do I think they'll win it? Probably not, but I thought they had a higher chance than some people were giving them. And I thought, like, if I had to predict, I thought like it could go six, you know. But mm-hmm. um, and I I still feel that way. Like you had texted. And I think you quickly kind of reversed course on it when I made the point about the tired legs. But I, I felt optimistic about it, and I still feel okay, even though they lost game one. I didn't think they needed to win this game. I think, obviously, now they need to win game two. Hopefully, 
I'm not guessing Durant doesn't play again and that this is their best chance now to steal a game before Durant possibly comes back. But anyway, what really, if I had to pick a thing to be concerned about going forward, it's the offense more than the defense. And I think you alluded to that well. I think the Blazers didn't have much time to pre- – I think they were tired, and I don't think they had much time to prepare. And I thought they just – if I had to guess, I would guess they kind of were like play our usual style in game one and kind of see what happens. And I don't think it worked. The ESPN broadcast was picking on the Blazers' pick-and-roll coverages, which, you know, normally is not something – the uh, a national broadcast gets so detailed as to talk about, but I think they were absolutely right with kind of the blazer big sagging back. Basically Curry could call for pick and then dribble, walk into a three pointer and you just can't let that happen against this Warriors yeah. team. And I think they'll try and fix it. I think some of it has to do with Canner too. To be honest, if I'm Terry Stotts, Tanner can play when Bo gets in the game, but other than that, I want I want to roll with Collins in this series for the most part. The fact of the matter is, if Tanner, if you're playing the pick and roll with, like that's Tanner sagging back. I understand because Tanner just doesn't have the foot speed to come up and like double team Curry effectively. I don't think. So I, I think for the most part, if you're going to play a more kind of trapping style, you have to go with Collins for the most part anyway. And I'm guessing we'll see more Collins than Canner going forward. Canner wasn't even really that effective on the on the offensive glass. Like he did get some chances, but was missing a lot of putbacks. I thought the Blazers just once again played played horrible in pretty in every facet of the game. They missed a lot of looks at the rim, and there were a lot of those kind of classic blazer bad possessions where like you end up with a Horkless three or Aminu driving to the basket, which as you know from our text conversations always enrages me. I also think Dots <laughs> needs to shorten the rotation. Like Evan Turner, salute, thank you for your service. But yeah. I don't think he should be playing anymore. I think they need to shorten the rotation to eight guys, their starter Curry, Hood and uh and Collins, basically. So I think defensively, there's a lot of room for improvement, and I think they will tighten that up going into game two. But the offense is actually what worries me. Dane, a thing that's underrated about Dane that I think people who don't watch a lot of the Blazers always pick up on, he's actually a fairly streaky shooter, and not in the sense of, like, in a game streaky he kind of has moments throughout the season where he slumps and then moments throughout the season where he's incredible. And he has the look of me to me right now of being in one of those slumps along with they showed him grabbing at his hamstring kind of, or like that upper back of the quad kind of below the glute or whatever in the last game. But he also had the look of to me. I saw this thing the last two games of the of the Nuggets series as well. He looks a little bit banged up to me, and he, he isn't as effective when he's that way. He can't be as explosive. He likes to go into that kind of behind-the-back dribble, that left-to-right dribble, and explode or, you know, go into that dribble and then come off a, a pick-and-shoot a three. And his ability to have that explosiveness, always he always looks less explosive to me when he's hurt, and he kind of looks like that right now. So as you pointed out, if 
if he's not able to get it going, it's probably curtains and just their ability to kind of, and I think that's where clay and, and Steph make it difficult, but their ability, the, the blazer ability to create off the pick and rolls and just end up with stuff. That's not Harkless or Aminu shooting threes is, is big. So I, I think and I also think that means you have to continue to roll. But Aminu's just looked horrible. I, I, I think he's a free agent at the end of the year, and, and he may be gone now. This may kind of solidify them being feeling good about letting him go and possibly going into the season with, with Collins as your starting four. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think you have to keep going to hood post-ups against smaller guards and kind of – try and get anything that's not Lillard and, and CJ, you know, have their most effective options on the floor when, when it's not Lillard and CJ. So, you yeah. know, I, I, I feel okay. I think they can win game two. But I will say, if this is the end of the series, if they get swept, it's not going to really damper my feeling about the season. At the end of this at the, the end of the day, Yusuf Nurkic is not on this team. He was their second best player for much of the year. Cantor's hurt. Hood is now hurt. I'm pretty sure he's not at 100%. Mm-hmm. Them getting swept even is not going to really make me feel that bad. I just want them to put on a better showing than game one. They didn't. Need, the effort didn't even really look there. So as long as they're playing hard, you're not going to hear much much complaints from me other than a couple of those little coaching mis- tweaks that I think need to occur. Yeah, and I totally agree with, like, I, like the offensive stuff I I am worried about, but defensively, I think it's, like, they can do things defensively that'll like, help improve their, their game in terms of, I think you outlined it perfectly, you'll probably not play Canner as much, and I think pe- what people have to realize is from series to series, you just have to play different ways because yeah. they're playing different teams, regardless yeah. of how well Canner looked or played in that Denver series because he was banging bodies with Jokic and kind yeah. of holding his own. People have to realize the personnel that's on the floor um, for Golden State doesn't warrant Canner playing more, probably more than. 20 minutes a game. It's not even necessarily Canner's fault. Capella got played off the floor in that Rockets series. The Rockets' best lineup was P.J. Tucker at center. So the Blazers probably have to find that version of that, whether it's Aminu at center or, or, you know, Collins. Right. And, I I mean, I think think Collins kind kind of gives you the best of both worlds in being able to possibly take advantage of the offensive glass. Yeah, as w- with his height, and then also having enough foot speed to be able to be able to co- co- do the pick and roll coverages that would be somewhat effective against that Warriors team. So I mean, I think Collins is going to be extremely important in this series defensively, and then hopefully he could chip in offensively with a couple offensive putbacks and um, kind of pounding the offensive glass. Agreed. Yeah. So. There's much else to say about this series other than what we've said already, but I did want to kind of quickly cover the Eastern Conference yeah. uh, finals before we start off, um, before the series starts tonight. Um, what are your general thoughts about this series? Because, I mean, we kind of have to talk about Kawhi. I mean, we did, that was just like 
unfreaking believable. Yeah, what ended up happening? Um, that game seven shot with all the bounces that ended up taking place yeah. on that final. It was incredible. Yeah, um, and like to be able. So let me give you a funny story actually because. Okay. With that shot, we so I was down in D.C. H- hanging out post-finals uh, with my friends. We were watching the game, and obviously a lot of my friends are Game of Thrones fans, and we're in the middle of Game of Thrones, like, final season. Um, yeah. it, it was, like, the second-to-last episode. Um, so there was a conflict of time interest, and I actually did not get to see it on this big screen, but I was watching it on my phone, streaming it. <laughs> you were on the side TV so, or so you were was, on your phone? I was on my phone streaming it while so people funny. were watching Game of Thrones. So I was on the couch with the li- So all the lights were off. Everyone's <laughs> focused in on Game of Thrones. And I'm watching this this tiny screen. And I'm I'm trying to figure out, like, did the ball go in or, like, because it was just bouncing there and my screen was a little fuzzy. The connection wasn't great. And and then all I see is just people going re- like crazy. And then I'm just like silently cheering. And there, it, it's like a hilarious. That it, is it's incredible. Hilarious. It's hilarious because like someone's dying in Game of Thrones, like spoiler alert, someone dies in Game of Thrones. And yeah. I'm like literally celebrating jump out of my chair and people are like looking at me crazy. That's hilarious. And it it was pretty funny just to kind of see all of that happen. Um, yeah. So yeah, I couldn't believe the shot ended up happening and just like Kawhi looks ridiculous. Like that's why you get Kawhi, I guess. Yeah. Right. Like that was yeah. the reason why you ended up getting him and for him to kind of, take over that game for Toronto and look the way he did. And it's not like, I mean, it, people forget Jimmy Butler ended up hitting that clutch layup going yeah. um, right before that shot ended up happening. And like it, it just seemed like Jimmy Butler was like the only one that could kind of really make a shot or like yeah. look somewhat competent towards the end of that game. Well, and it was, yes, I, towards the end of the game, both teams locked up. But, I mean, you could probably say the same about Toronto and Kawhi. I mean, Kawhi really looked like the – like, arguably, he was over-aggressive in that game. Like, he wasn't particularly efficient. But right. he looked like the only one who was willing to, to, to shoot, basically, for, for much mm-hmm. of that game. Totally. And now it's kind of like, what does Philly do with this team now? Yeah. There are a lot Like, I think there are a lot of rumors about – Brett Brown getting let go. I think there are reports being confirmed that he's, he's saying coming back. It's right. pretty much confirmed that he's saying now. I, right. I think uh, I think Elton Brand pretty much said like we're rolling for him for with him for another year. And honestly, I uh, I I am in support of that. I don't think Brett Brown's necessarily an incredible coach, but I don't think there's anyone left on the market who is worth replacing him with. And I think at the end of the day a lot of these te- this team's problems are more structural than coaching related. You know what I totally mean? Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to see what ends up happening with Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris. Do they just bring the crew back and then see what they can kind of do moving forward and chalk it up to Ben Simmons needs to learn how to shoot, <laughs> a sh- like shoot the ball and maybe, 
maybe even if he shoots like 30% from the field, from like his two point shots outside of the paint, maybe you yeah. just kind of let him do that. So he kind of shakes that off and gains some type of confidence in like, Oh, I can shoot the ball in the game. Or I don't know, like if it's mandated by the coaching staff to tell him like not to shoot, or if it's something like being self-imposed on himself where he's yeah. just telling himself, like, I can't make this shot, so I'm not shooting it. Um, well, because there's, like, reports out that he it says that, oh, he can shoot the ball in practice, but why isn't he doing that in games? Yeah, same. I'm sure they said that about Markel Fultz also. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I wanted to say a couple of things. I just hit on a couple of things you made. First of all, I don't feel super qualified to, to – uh, kind of talk about the series as a whole between the Blazers, our finals, and then me being away. I really didn't get a chance to watch much of the series as I would like. Same kind of with the Celtics-Bucks series. So a lot of it is kind of – a lot of my thoughts are based on the, the, the short amount of time I have watched and kind of box score type things. I feel like the prevailing sentiment right now and kind of what I agree with from like NBA talking head types is that Harris is gone and it's going to be Butler, uh, Simmons, Embiid. And I think with that, I kind of agree with that idea because I think Harris, while very a good player in his own right, the redundancies kind of revealed themselves and that this team would be better suited. You know, J.J. Reddick's a free agent also, but this team would be better suited by using this, by using their money to create more using the Harris money it sucks that now there's a sunk cost they basically gave up three first round picks to acquire him you know but uh yeah I think at the end of the day the experiment failed and you need to create more depth and have more shooters around you know what I mean you have to have like he you're better off replacing Reddick I mean uh, replacing Harris with kind of more de- honestly I think they might have been better off not down the stretch not making the not making the Harris trade if you had had kind of a lineup of Shamit and Shamit in there and then maybe like Butler at the you know Simmons at the four or something like that you know mm-hmm. I don't know maybe you, there's a there's an argument to be made that you were better off so I think they're I think they're not going to go super drastic but I think maybe going back to that core three and then trying to rejig your things around there is the way forward. Um, on the Kawhi shot, and then I wanted to kind of pivot into the Eastern Conference Finals. The Kawhi shot was kind of interesting because I really only got to watch the fourth quarter of the game. Uh, after the Blazers series, I was kind of reveling in that for a while, and I walked back from, walked back from the book to our hotel, and we were getting ready to go to dinner. But then my brother started watching Game of Thrones in the room and kind of kicked me out, so I went down. I went down to the kind of the bar slash sports book in the casino when we were staying where we were staying at. So I kind of got to watch the shot in a crowded room where like half the people were cheering for Toronto and half the people were cheering for Philly. And I was also playing video poker at the same time. So it was really <laughs> just a lot of simulate, you know, cause at those bars, right. they have them in AC too. They have like the video poker yeah, and you get your yeah. drinks comp. So I was like during the commercial breaks playing video poker. So, but I mean, like you said, just an incredible shot and just emblematic of what Kawhi has done in the series 
which is just kind of take really fucking hard shots and, and make them a lot of the time. But and we got a reaction out of him. <laughs> we got a reaction out yeah. of him, too. And there's obviously you know, that iconic shot of him kind of crouched down with yep. the bench behind him as in Embiid looks on. Um, and I'm sure me and you both agree that Embiid is a baby for crying, and I'm completely kidding. <laughs> that's the most stupid. That's the most stupid discussion uh, of all time. I don't mm-hmm. even want to touch that. Um, but I was wondering how you felt about our Toronto pick because I don't really feel great about it, and I I think I'm ready to kind of pick the Bucks to win this series. What about you? I mean, I think I have to stay loyal and true. I think it's going seven regardless, but it's I I don't know. It I'm very curious to see how this game plays out tonight. Um yeah. especially with like I'm curious to see like who Toronto puts on Giannis. Yeah. Um and what they decide to do with that and what what the matchups are because it seems like with all the matchups being played out, Marcus Hall is going to be on Brooke, and then probably Siakam's going to be on Giannis. Yeah, I think that's, I it, think that's I kind of say. the lot. I think that's the logical idea. I think it's Siakam on Giannis, and then you get you get some Kawhi on him and to throw it in there too. I don't see them putting Gasol on him. I just don't think he has the. You know, you can get away with that with Horford or a smaller center who has a little bit more lateral kind of ability. And I think Gasol is still a capable defender as like a help defender and maybe a post defender, but I just don't think he has the the ability to stay with him. So I think it's mostly going to be Siakam and then you maybe throw in some Kawhi or maybe that's an adjustment later on if Siakam's really getting cooked so that you you maybe roll with Kawhi and see what he can do. Yeah, or maybe, and like my thinking might have about this series might be, hey, we're going to just kind of let Siakam try his thing against um, Giannis. And then we're going to just try to lock up all the other guys, because mm-hmm. if Kawhi's on Chris Middleton, and I think that might be the key matchup is if Middleton isn't a consistent second scorer for the Bucks, I'm curious to see where else the offense comes from, because Brogdon's coming off of that injury, just coming back. He looked well in his last, in that last game, closing out uh, Boston, but he's still kind of getting his legs under him. I'm curious to see if Kawhi kind of does a decent number on Chris Middleton, what ends up happening and where the scoring comes from, because I don't know about you, if you'd feel comfortable having your offense rely on Eric Bledsoe and uh, Brogdon coming down the stretch. So no, we'll I, see what ends up happening. It's funny, I don't, but... My problem and why I'm, you know, maybe I'll, I, I'm not afraid of, nah, I'll pick the Bucks, but, okay. I, and because I, I wanted to end my, end our podcast with one giant hot take, but I, don't you have that same problem with Toronto now that's obviously yeah. manifested itself? Lowry mm-hmm. and Gasol look afraid to, to shoot most of the time. Yeah. So if it comes down to Kawhi, have, Kawhi save us. Especially if they, I think they'll probably stick with Middleton on Kawhi a lot of the time, but maybe they mix up some Giannis on him, which which could give give Kawhi more problems because it's one thing to take those contested twos with you know whatever just your general three on you, even if it's like someone like Jimmy Butler or Harris, but someone with that much length in your grill 
I would say, makes things exponentially more difficult. So I, I feel the same way. I mean, you you brought up a good point, but I think it's true for Toronto as well. They haven't yeah, really shown that much of ability to uh, to to get anything outside of Kawhi. I mean, the Bucks are great at stopping transition, things in mm-hmm. transition. They give up a lot of threes, but they don't give up corner threes, which is where like Siakam has kind of shown an ability. I'm not sure if Siakam is going to be able to trans his thing is going to be able to transfer over that well, especially if the, if Giannis is on it. If they roll with uh, Middleton on Kawhi and Giannis on Siakam, I think that pretty much neutralizes him. And then, okay, what do you have left? You have Gasol and Lowry with, like, above-the-break threes that they haven't really wanted to shoot. So yeah. that kind of frightens me, too. So that's why it'll be interesting. There's so many kind of fun parallels to this team. They're both – and, you know, kind of at the same time, their weaknesses seem sort of uh, mirrored in in some way. So I, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how all that plays out. And especially defensively, there are so many interesting possible permutations, as you kind of alluded to earlier, that seeing what ends up being the most effective in terms of stopping Giannis and on the other side, stopping Kawhi, who may be the team to figure that out first is, is the one that wins the series. Yeah, I totally agree. So there's a couple of things before I wanted to uh, close out the pod. Two more topics. Okay. One first topic, LA Lakers hiring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like Frank Vogel, like very quick reaction to that. And Jason Kidd being on the staff as well. So like, I I just want you to reiterate your bar rescue, bar rescue, um, what's it called? Analogy, yeah. because it's so apt and perfect for this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we did it again. Like, just like the interpersonal drama that this team continues to kind of foster. Like, the Vogel hires whatever. Out of all the people available, I think he's probably was one of the better options. But no, that's it, it, felt, it felt like that. Like when you look back on his record, he only got more than 50 wins once in the Orlando years were, were not great. But like hiring him, whatever. But this kid thing, like there's no fucking way it doesn't end up in a power struggle. Like it's the same bar rescue kind of thing. It's like we're like you have your manager, but like you also hire, like the owner also hires his sister to also manage the bar. And they're like, fighting all the time and also one of the bar and also the sister is deeply troubled and is a domestic abuser who has two DUIs. Like <laughs> it's just not, it's just not good. And like, honestly, if you were going to, I LeBron obviously wanted kid. I don't know. I, I almost wish they had just gone with kids so we could have just gotten this thing over with as opposed to having right. to drag out. But, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I other than that, I, I don't have much to say on it other than just, like, kind of the continued, like, exasperated sigh that I feel like doing every time we bring up a Lakers thing. Do you have anything kind of that's nope. jumping out I mean, to you? Nope, just wanted to hear your bar rescue analogy. Taffer would, I, I tweeted that this was before the firing, but, like, Taffer would come in and, like, make Genie Bus tearfully fire the Ramby. The Ramby is <laughs> the name for the Rambuses. Uh, uh, immediately yeah. and now it would be like this it would be like 
Taffer would be like you have to have one one manager who's, who's just who's a one delegating. You can't are you just, choosing. Yeah, <laughs> you can't have two two people try and so you know we're headed for the same old shit different day. I you can't know, wait. Yeah, it's I gonna can't depend wait. on the roster to some extent also, but you know. Yeah. I was just going to say, I can't wait for the uh, air date on the uh, new episode of Bar Rest in about <laughs> six months about the LA Lakers. So, yeah. Well, we'll see what ends up happening with them and what happens between uh, Vogel and Kidd. And the last thing I did want to talk about, nothing related to basketball at all, was my New York Jets. I felt like I had to bring this up. Okay. They, they broke the news that they fired Mike McCat. Mike McCagnan, who's kind of run um, the New York Jets. And, yeah, just wanted to say how incompetent the Jets are. Like, three weeks after the draft. Yeah, I a guess couple weeks just, after the draft. Happened, I guess and, it's just one of those yeah. things in NFL teams or NBA teams, whenever a team does this, it's just weird. The whole firing after the draft never makes any sense to me. I mean, you, I heard saw you and Chris in our group chat talking back and forth and, like, him getting fired doesn't seem so much like the problem as much as uh, kind of the timing of it. And it seems like there was a disconnect between him and Adam Gates. Adam Gates is now looking like he's going to consolidate some power and also take over his GM duties, at least for the time being. I don't know if that's just on an interim basis or if, or if someone yep. else is going to kind of uh, emerge at that role. But, yeah, if I'm a Jet fan, I'm not really – I don't know if I really – I don't know if Gase has really earned the cachet to be handling GM's duties as well as uh, as Gase, as, uh, as coaching duties. And as much as I'm happy with seeing uh, him gone, I, I, the timing is – I'm shaking my head at kind of how things went. <laughs> That's the understatement of the state century about him having the qualifications to handle a GM position, especially yeah. with him getting fired by a Miami team who's in the Jets' own division. So it's uh, it's troubling, to say the least, Sorry, um, man. to kind of see what ends up happening with that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what they were really thinking. I mean, me and Chris were kind of on it. Early, early on, in terms of like when Bowles got fired, they should just kind of let go of McCagney and start fresh. Um, yeah, I don't really see the logic in the decision, but yeah, who says the Jets are run by logic anyway? So, we'll, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what ends up happening. So, hopefully, this does not F up Sam Darnold enough, but. We shall see. There's a lot of team drama. Like, Gaze didn't necessarily agree with signing Le'Veon Bell to a long-term deal, so that can't yeah, there be great. Yeah, there was a New York um, Post thing that came out almost immediately that was saying that Gaze maybe didn't want Bell, so. Yeah, well, man. Yeah. NFL season for me and Chris. Um, so, thanks again, Andrew, for coming on to thankful that we're able to have this pod and get all of our reactions to all the craziness that's going on in the NBA. Uh, we'll yeah. probably, I'll probably get your reactions on a couple of the forms and stuff um, if they're able to get a game and kind of make it a series in the middle of, of the yeah. Western Conference Finals and see uh, where your head's at there and one, one, maybe we'll catch a game.
Yeah, sounds good. Uh, regardless, I'm sure we'll now, especially that school zone where we both have a little bit of downtime, we'll do this a little bit more often as we as we head down the stretch in the NBA. As you say, I know it's craziness, but good to talk to you again, man. Yep, sounds good. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. And if you guys haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you guys listen to podcasts. Message and I hope it makes you smile. Don't worry about me, baby, cause I swear that I'll be fine. I got a girl with a mind on love, the kind of love that is dangerous. It knocks me down, but I get back up, and I'm addicted, I can't get enough.